This is an ABC podcast. And coming to you from Gadigal Land, another summer edition of the Little Wireless Program. There's a strange tradition in diplomacy of giving lavish gifts. It's heavily constrained these days, but once upon a time, those presents spanned from the bizarre to the exotic. Everything from beavers, would you believe, to moon rocks. British diplomat Paul Brummel will join us a bit later to give us a full inventory. But first, as someone who's been banging on about climate change for decades, it's been exhilarating to see the amount of advocacy coming from Generation Z. And I had the pleasure earlier this year of speaking to three of the most prominent young climate activists in the world. Now, not only are they holding governments and business to account through their actions, they're striving to bring the voices of those most affected by climate crisis to the front and centre. Vanessa Nakate is a climate activist from Uganda. She's the founder of the Rise Up Climate Movement and the author of A Bigger Picture, my fight to bring a new African voice to the climate crisis. Dr Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, is a British Bangladeshi ornithologist and environmentalist. She's the founder of Black to Nature, which campaigns for equal access to nature. And she too has written a book. Hers is We Have a Dream, Meet 30 young Indigenous people and people of colour protecting the planet. And Anjali Sharma is a Year 12 student and climate activist who took the government to court at the age of just 16. It was an honour to speak to them and I started by asking Vanessa how she got into climate change activism given that it wasn't something she'd learnt much about at school. Thank you so much. In school... We do learn about climate change, but it's more of us understanding that it is the changes in weather conditions over a long period of time, but we never get the reality of what's actually happening on the ground. So what is told doesn't make us feel that urgency, that actually a crisis is happening right now. But I remember in 2018, I started to do research about the challenges that the people in my country, Uganda, were facing. And when I realized that climate change was one of those problems and actually the greatest threat facing the lives of so many people at that time, I decided to read more about it and understand what causes it and also to understand the impacts that were already unfolding in my country. So when I realized and found out that my country was already experiencing extreme weather events because of the changes in global temperatures, for example, the occurrence of floods and landslides in the western part of the country, in areas of Kasese and also in the eastern part of the country, and extreme dry seasons in other parts of the country, I knew that I had to 
joined the climate movement and I started to strike every Friday to demand for climate justice. Now, you discovered Greta Thunberg, of course, but it's much more difficult in your country for a young woman to be an activist. That's right. Uh, being a young activist, but also a woman is quite challenging because I remember in the beginnings of my activism and sharing my work on, on social media, some of the comments that would come in on some of the posts that I would put were things like, you know, I was using activism and disguising prostitution and calling it climate activism, or I was a young woman and I was trying to attract attention from men or looking for a man to marry. So those were some of the initial comments I received uh, when I started doing activism. And I, I, I get to think about how any other young woman who would want to do activism, if they read those comments, whether they would consider joining activism because it's more complicated when you're young, but also more complicated when you're a young woman. But you persisted and you were soon striking once or twice a week outside Uganda's parliament. Yes, um, I continued to organise the strikes. I did actually one strike at the Ugandan parliament. The next times I tried to do the strike, it was never allowed. But most of the strikes were done in front of malls and on the streets and in front of, you know, petrol stations. And that was from 2019 until now. We continue to organize strikes and also reach out to different students in schools. Because, again, in my country, it's not so easy for us to organize big strikes like we see in European countries or in the UK. It's kind of really different for us and how we engage as many students as possible it means us going to the schools speaking to the students and educating them and getting them involved in the climate activism and now to uh, maya rose you've always had of course your passion for bird watching that was your inspiration apparently yeah absolutely um you know i've been I'm 19 now and I've been talking about environmental issues since I was about 11. But as a child, the way that I first became aware of those in the first place was through that love of birds and engagement with nature. And from there, I think I, you know, was able to develop a really deep understanding of, you know, climate change, deforestation, palm oil pollution um, in a way that I think you see a lot more happening a lot more now with, you know, the internet and just this new generation of young activists, which I find so exciting. But you were only 11 when you started your blog, Bird Girl. Um, yeah, and originally it was, as the title suggests, just for me to talk about birds, really, and that love of birds, and to sort of I share that with other people. But I think... I guess the big surprise was that lots and lots of people started reading it. It, was, it wasn't supposed to be anything that would be particularly successful. Um, and I also realised really quickly that I was interested in chatting about more than just the birds that I was seeing at the weekend. I had magically sort of come across or gained myself this platform online and I realised I wanted to actually do something with it um, and start campaigning and start talking about these issues that I cared about. And I started doing that long before I knew really what activism or campaigning even were. 
But Maya Rose Craig, you uh, you'd learned you learned the power of activism via an oil spill in Bangladesh. Yeah, definitely. Um, so about six months after my blog started, I heard through Bangladeshi news because I'm my family's from Bangladesh. I heard through those sources that there'd been this terrible oil spill in Bangladesh and the mangrove forest that is so important in terms of, you know, the Bengal tiger, loads of other endangered species, but also lots and lots of people live there. And I remember as a child just waiting for that to be picked up in the Western news and waiting for the outrage and the upset to happen. And it just didn't. I didn't hear anyone in the UK or America talking about it. And I was just getting really desperate, really upset. And then it sort of suddenly occurred to me that, I had this platform and I could talk about this issue even if no one else was. And so I took it upon myself to write lots of articles for my blog and write various articles for various other publications. And it ends up raising loads and loads of money and bringing that attention into the West. And I think that was the first time as a child I realised that, um, you know, I could make a difference. Now, let's go to Melbourne and Anjali Sharma. What impelled you to act? Hi. Um, firstly, uh, just to Vanessa and Maya Rose, um, I look up to you guys so much, so it's such a privilege to be part of this conversation with you guys. Um, but my story is, in essence, really similar to Vanessa's, but then also um, completely the opposite, because I've grown up seeing climate impacts in my home country of India um, devastate my family. There's been the 2017 floods, the 2020 floods, everything in between. But having the privilege to move to Australia at the age of 10 months, um, this is something that I've never experienced. And in Australia, there is so many more avenues to push for something like climate action than there is in India because, you know, you try that in India, you can get forcibly disappeared. But here we have the ability to strike. We have the ability to um, initiate civil actions against the government. And um, I guess knowing that I had that privilege kind of turned it into a responsibility for me, which is why I've been doing this. Now, you you started by organising climate action marches and it was through school strikes that you became the lead litigant in this wonderful lawsuit. Yeah, that's right. Um, So the school strike network in Australia is incredible. Um, It's in all states and it has just thousands of students pushing for climate action. And it's through that that one of my friends um, began working as a paralegal at this law firm at Equity Generation Lawyers. And They're the law firm that has been developing the case theory behind this case against the Australian government for years. And um, it's through that that I got linked with them and became the lead litigant in what became a successful civil action against the Australian government to establish a duty of care to protect us from the impacts of climate change. Now, Anjali, last year the federal court agreed that uh, Environment Minister Susan Lee did have a duty of care to young Australians, but uh, overturned on appeal. Now that you've had time to reflect, how do you feel about the, the two decisions? Look, the appeal decision is just as devastating as it was on day one, but I've realised that we've come so, so far. Making the Federal Court of Australia accept 
um, climate science unequivocally and realize that climate change is becoming an ever-relevant and ever-growing problem that's going to impact young people for many years to come, that's a very strong finding to um, be handed down in the federal court. And we forced the Australian government to say what they've been trying to hide out loud. It's it says so much about what this government is willing to do to continue to um, fund more and more fossil fuel projects and more and more um, land-destroying projects that are just not needed in Australia right now. Um, and the fact that they were willing to take eight children back to court, that speaks volumes. And I hope that the Australian public don't forget that. Back to Uganda and you, Vanessa. Many listeners will be aware of the appalling incident at Davos, but would you describe it again? Yes. Uh, while I was in Davos, I attended a press conference with fellow activists from Europe. But um, unfortunately, when one of the articles and pictures from the press conference was shared, I was not included in the picture and my name and my message was also not included in the article. So it felt like a complete erasure of my existence at the press conference, but above all the erasure of my message and my experience when it comes to the climate crisis. And this is one of the horrible realities of you know, climate change. One of them being that those who are being affected the most are least responsible for the crisis. Historically, the African continent is responsible for less than 4% of global emissions. And yet so many people are being impacted by the climate crisis right now. Vanessa, let's, re let's repeat that figure, less than 4%. Yes, less than 4% of the global emissions. And yet many Africans are already suffering the impacts of climate change right now, devastating impacts. But while the African continent is on the front lines of the climate crisis, it is not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. And many times activists from Africa, they find challenges, for example, in attending conferences, climate conferences, like the most recent COP, where some activists couldn't attend because of the vaccine in iniquity because of no access to funding or accreditation. So in a way, those who are being impacted the most are those who are least listened to or who will most likely find themselves removed from certain rooms or certain conversations or from certain pictures. And yet there is a need to listen to every activist. Because you every you activist make a very has... powerful point in your book that while we're painfully aware of the Amazon's problems, we don't know about the Congo Basin rainforest ecosystem. Yes, um, in 2019, that's when I came to the knowledge of what was happening in the Congo rainforest. And it was after being asked a question about why the world uh, only cares about, you know, the Amazon and there is no much care about the Congo rainforest. And I started to read about it. And I remember reading an, an article that explained that because of the deforestation that is going on in the Congo rainforest and the world not paying attention to it, it could be gone by 2100. 
So I decided to organize a campaign called Save Congo Rainforest to highlight what was happening in the Congo Rainforest and to demand you know, for its protection because it's possible for an entire ecosystem to disappear without the whole world knowing it. One of the things that really struck me during that campaign is that many people, there, there are people who didn't know about the existence of the rainforest and yet it is the largest in Africa and the second largest in the world. And there are also people who didn't know about what was happening. But it's also important to know that over 75 million people depend on the existence of this forest. Maya Rose, you've said that uh, you noticed at a young age that there was no one that looked like you out in nature. Why do you think this is such a problem and how have you tried to address it? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I can't speak for Australia, but in the UK, there's a really big issue to do with access to nature and the outdoors being a very middle class white privilege, basically. Um, you know, it's seen as a pastime that you can only enjoy if you are, um, I suppose, of that group. And so growing up, being being Bangladeshi, being not white, I was very aware that I looked very different from ever an amount around me and when I was 13 I started Black to Nature purely because I, I suppose I wanted to break down some of that privilege and give kids who lived in more urban areas that opportunity to go outdoors and engage with nature which I think is important on so many levels like on a more personal level I love birds I love nature I wanted to let other people you know learn to love them as well but also it's so so important for our mental health mental well-being um, and things like that and then on top of that you know, with so many environmental crises going on simultaneously all over the world, um, you know, you can't help but think, um, I, I suppose, how do people even have a frame of reference to understand or care about these issues in the first place when they've literally never seen a forest or, you know, never been to the sea or never, you know, see, seen wildlife, basically. And so I also think um, giving people that opportunity to engage with the outdoors is so, so important in terms of engaging people with the wider environmental and climate movement. Maya Rose, you've been a passionate advocate for Indigenous rights when it comes to environmental matters and environmentalism. And this informs your book, We Have a Dream. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially... Um, you know, when that youth climate movement was first growing, there was, it was, well, actually, no, it still is such a massive issue that, you know, you only hear the, the voices of very white, very European activists for the most part still. Um, and I was very aware that, you know, Indigenous activists are very often on the front lines of issues like climate change and deforestation, but also have so much to say and are very often erased by Western media and so I've been trying for the past few years to sort of uplift and amplify um, various activists all over the world. And I suppose the book We Have a Dream was a culmination of that. Um, it was amazing during lockdown, sort of tracking down all of these fantastic activists and just letting them speak, letting them be heard. Um, you know, and I met people all over the world from Australia, from India, from South America, who have just been doing amazing work for years and years, uncredited and unlistened to. Angelie, is this lack of diversity and effectively the silencing of voices something you've experienced as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, personally, I find that in the climate movement, it's really, really hard for people of colour to, 
I guess, make their voices heard only because of the backlash that is so, so severe when you do. Um, you know, having the opportunity to come into the public spotlight some two years ago with this court case, the racism that I've experienced is it's vile. And I'm so, so grateful to have had the most amazing legal and media team behind me who have just always given me the best advice and always offered to um, regulate comment sections and all of that. But it's it's really hard to ignore just the 60 message requests you get after an interview, all with death threats and rape threats and all this stuff that you know that your white counterparts don't experience. I think we should make the point that there are quite a few First Nations people, including women, who are, who are involved in the environmental movement. Uh, this is the voice of Angeli Sharma, Year 12 student and climate activist, and we're also joined by v Vanessa Nakata, founder of the Rise Up Climate Movement, and Dr. Maya Rose Craig, ornithologist and founder of Black to Nature. Vanessa, why is it so important to strive for gender equality? Yeah, um, I think that the climate crisis disproportionately affects um, many women and girls across the world. And especially in areas where I come from, where women and women have the responsibilities of providing for their families, if it's food or if it's water. So they're the ones to work on the farms. You know, when the disasters have destroyed their crops, they're the ones to walk long distances to look for water for their families. And we've read of articles that have talked about child marriages, whereby many parents are pushed to the extreme of giving up their girl children for marriage in exchange for bride price in order to recover from the climate impact. So I know that the climate crisis exacerbates already existing gender inequalities in our societies. And that's why there is a need to prioritize women empowerment for climate justice, but also girls' education for climate justice. Of course, it's not just in Afghanistan that young women are being denied education. You write about more than 130 million girls aren't in schools and should be. Yes, um, many, you know, many girls across the world are not in school and yet they should be in school. You know, Education should be beyond just an opportunity that a girl child gets. It should be a right because it is a right for all of us to go to school, to get an education. So I think that there is a need to understand the intersection of many of these issues when it comes to the climate you know, crisis and education of girls and to understand how climate change heavily impacts education of girls and how inaction really exacerbates the inequalities that women face. So there is a need for people to know that as we address, you know, girls' education and women empowerment, this is actually the fifth most impactful solution to reducing greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, according to Project Drawdown. Yes, it reduces existing inequalities. It builds resilience of individuals, families and communities, but at the same time, it reduces greenhouse gases. You mentioned briefly in your book a study from Australia which documents a 
a rising incidence of domestic violence in rural regions after fires and droughts depressed the agricultural income. Maya Rose, you agree with Vanessa? You see a link between gender equality and sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the really interesting thing about the environmental movement is, is it is one that's absolutely been built off the back of women and women's labour um, and always has been, you know, tracing it all the way back to the 60s and things like that. And yet over and over again, where you sort of trace up the py- pyramid and you look at the top, it's always the leaders and the CEOs quite often end up being men still. Um, and I, um, like the other two, have definitely received my fair share of, you know, um, really vile stuff online because I am a girl, obviously. And I just think like one of the most important things is going to be, you know, continuing to highlight the work of women, the emotional labour of women and how much they give. All, all three of you, of course, constantly emphasise the necessity to have women in the room when policies and issues are being discussed. Angelie, do you uh, think having more diversity of race and gender uh, here in Australia would make a difference? Oh, absolutely. Time and time again, we see our politicians telling telling the media, telling the public what women want, telling them what First Nations want, um, you know, saying in one breath that Australia is such a beautiful multicultural country, but at the same time, speaking over the voices of people of colour and First Nations people and making policies regarding us that don't represent us. Um, it's time to have actual people of colour speaking for people of colour. It's time to have women speaking for women. Otherwise, the, these voices, they pretend to be spoken for, but they're not. Angelie, I've been campaigning lately for a reduction in the voting age to 16. I 100% agree that the voting age needs to be lowered to 16 or something around there. Not only will it broaden the demographic that politicians need to appeal to to get re-elected and ensure that issues that matter to everyone are addressed, but it also gets us young people more involved in politics because, like, shocker, you don't want to engage with a system that you don't feel is actually hearing you and giving us the vote is it's going to change those attitudes. Um, you know, you see in this day and age that when people don't feel heard by the system, they either become completely disengaged or they become radicalised like most of us have been. And it's time to actually have our voices heard at the highest level. Vanessa, what's the voting age in Uganda? You can vote at 18. (laughs) You say that rather cynically. In other words, you don't think uh, the normal political processes are much good for you? Well, I think... I think that, you know, it would be good to have a voting age at 17 or 16 and also for, you know, young people to understand how much the power of their votes can transform the world. But I I think we still have a bit of luck in that kind of education or awareness about the power of, you know, the voting rights of young people. Vanessa, you write in a bigger picture, those of us born at the end of the last century and in the early years of this one have grown up in the shadow of HIV AIDS, 
terrorism, financial meltdowns, huge technical change and disruption. Many of us have experienced firsthand how our planet's ecosystems are breaking down under climate stress. So young people like yourselves are forced to deal with the emergency. Well, uh, that's right, because we find ourselves, you know, born into systems that are already full of injustices, that are already full of so many challenges and so many problems. And as we grow up, we realize that we don't want, you know, the same kind of things we've grown into to be the future because we've seen that, you know, in there, there is no hope, in there, there is no joy, in there, there is no peace because what we see is injustices, what we see is suffering of so many people. So I think this is one of the things that really drives us to, you know, to ensure that we can have a better future from what we are seeing, but not just for ourselves, but also for the coming generations. Maya Rose, I'm sure that uh, young people listening to this program, and there are some, will be inspired by you and Vanessa and Anjali to want to be involved because young people are totally changing the conversation, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as someone who's been sort of involved in environmentalism since about 2013, I think the massive shift that we've seen in the conversation around climate change just cannot be understated and is absolutely credited to the younger generation. Um, You know, climate change has gone from being this sort of weird niche green issue to being absolutely front and centre of everything regardless of how it's actually being dealt with um and well, I, here's a question so i want to put to each of you in turn to you first maya rose what can young people do to get involved i mean i think the cool thing is there is so much that you can do um on a really basic level you know i think that there are so many youth strike for climate movements and things like that all over um australia all over the world Um, And I think getting involved with things like that is so important in terms of dealing with like eco and climate anxiety, reminding yourself that there are other people out there who also care and are also passionate. Um, But even talking about things online, writing articles, even trying to like talk to your parents, your grandparents, you know, it all helps. I think especially if, you know, there are any big elections around the corner. Vanessa, your view? Um, For me, I think that... What uh, Maris has really explained, but just to add on that is, you know, for young people across the world to know that there is so much power in their voices and so much power in their actions. And to always remember that no voice is too small to change the world and no action is too small to transform the world. So it's about believing in ourselves and also believing that the kind of future that we are fighting for is not only necessary, but it's actually possible. And you, Anjali, I understand, want to become an environmental lawyer. Yeah, that's right. Um, But I think even before people like me begin a career um, or actually get the chance to vote, there's still so many avenues that can be used to push for change. And the biggest barrier to entry in terms of climate activism, I, I believe, among our generation here in Australia, is the fact that people don't believe that they can do it, they, they can actually make meaningful change. Um, you know, they feel disengaged, they feel disillusioned. You talk about climate strikes to some people and they go, oh yeah, as if that's going to do anything. But it is, it's changing hearts and minds. And on that inspirational note, I think 
thank you all, Anjali Sharma, Year 12 student and climate activist, Vanessa Nakate, founder of the Rise Up Climate Movement, and the author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis, and Dr. Maya Rose Craig, ornithologist extraordinaire, environmentalist, founder of Black to Nature, and author of We Have a Dream, Meet 30 Young Indigenous People and People of Colour Protecting the Planet. Vanessa, Maya Rose and Anjali, I thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is the summer edition of LNL. Up next, the curious history of diplomatic gifts. Reams of pages have been dedicated to the art of diplomacy over the years and we've had many of those fine chroniclers of statecraft on the show. But there's one very important part of statecraft that tends to get overlooked, and that's the art of diplomatic gift-giving. Now, these days, the, the presents might be pretty tokenistic, lest they be seen as a bribe, but that hasn't always been the case. In the past, gifts have had the potential to make or break an alliance, and sometimes they did just that. The Trojan horse, of course, springs to mind as a particularly brutal example. Paul Brummel is a career diplomat. Paul's currently the British ambassador to the Republic of Latvia, and in Paul's spare time, he's been researching this peculiar aspect of history. His book is appropriately titled Diplomatic Gifts, A History in 50 Presents. And I welcomed him to the program all the way from Latvia. It's lovely to be with you, Philip. Did you have a nasty experience with the diplomatic present, Paul? Is that how the book came about? (laughs) No, not not really. I've, I've, I've received some... One or two quite strange diplomatic gifts in my in my time. I think uh, the the strangest probably having been a, a live goat, which I was was given once when ambassador in in Turkmenistan. Um, but but generally speaking, I think the uh, my experience has been rather rather like the way you, you you started out. That diplomatic gifts these days tend to be quite quite notional things. Usually, a, a visiting minister presenting to his his or her. Um, opposite number and cufflinks or a book or something something like that. And I just got the sense that that feels very different to the way diplomatic gifts were, were treated um, in the past. You see from, his, from, from museums, from, uh, from history books, that actually diplomatic gifts used to be quite important. So I think what, what spurred me to writing the, writing the book was just thinking a little bit about why that should be. I suddenly have an, a terrible memory of Sadat taking foreign visitors, top-level visitors, into the Cairo Museum and just giving them goodies out of the display racks. Anyway, the, I get the impression from your book that there's a lot of strategy involved in diplomatic gift-giving. Take us behind the scenes. What are some of the factors? I think there's a, there's a French sociologist called Marcel Morse um, writing uh, 
what is, is really the kind of seminal work on gift exchange right back in 1925. And I think he established the principle that, that gifts above all are about social relationships. And I think that's really important to diplomacy, that diplomacy needs, uh, you know, for diplomacy to function, you need to have a social relationship where the, the visiting envoy is, is safe to conduct business. Uh, and, and so coming with a gift is, is a means of pre- uh, means of, of generating that kind of relationship. But gifts do a lot more than, than, than just form a kind of bedrock of social relationships. So they can be about authority. Um, a good example is the uh, the Chinese Empire in the in the 18th century. We had a, a, a mission uh, led by George McCartney who went to China in 1793, and the aim of that was to to open up China for for British trade. And of course, that that mission failed completely because McCartney didn't really understand what what was happening and or, or, or how he was being regarded by the the King Qinglong Emperor. And and for the emperor, he he wanted to show this great largesse show the power of the the Chinese empire through the use of diplomatic gifts and then in in kind of modern days diplomatic gifts can be can be used as a sort of soft power so so countries will typically give a, give a lot of thought to presenting gifts which kind of showcase what the, what they're about. Fidel Castro, the, the, the Cuban president, famously used um, diplomatic gifts of, of cigars, his own brand of Cahiba cigars. And that was partly about sort of giving giving kind of personal connection from him to the recipient. But it was also about showcasing Cuba as, as a cigar manufacturer in the face of lots of competition from Well, Paul, from as, as we both remember, when, you know, Cuba was sort of pushed aside, the, the idea of a Cuban cigar became immensely attractive. There was a sort of a, a criminal underworld selling <laughs> Cuban cigars in the U.S., well, there's the there's the famous famous story. I'm not I'm not sure if it's an apocryphal story or, or, or not, but I think it was it was um, told by somebody very close to him, to the, to the late uh, President Kennedy, that, that actually he did he did go out send his send his staff out to the shops and order a large consignment of his favoured Cuban Petit Tupman cigars just before um, putting putting into place the the sanctions legislation. I've been addicted to ancient Egypt all my long life and I understand that uh, one of the first diplomatic gifts dates back to Akhenaten. That's right. I mean, there's there's a famous um, archaeological find which was called the Amarna Letters, which is this huge collection of, effectively, it was very early diplomatic correspondence dating back to the 14th century uh, BCE between uh, the Egyptian pharaohs and the uh, the big kings of of, of the uh, the ancient world. And what's fascinating about this correspondence is that it's absolutely full of diplomatic gifts that they're really Really at the centre of the exchanges between the, the the powers of the day, and and the rulers really don't hold back. I mean, they absolutely sort of spell out in these letters exactly what <laughs> diplomatic gifts they want from from the other the other powers. They all want they all want gold from from Egypt, particularly apart from I think one Babylonian ruler who very very curiously in one letter says he what he really wants from the pharaoh is a stuffed animal. <laughs> um, 
and they, they they also don't hold back when they what they get is not what they were expecting and and in in my book the example i focus on is uh, the ruler of uh, king tushratta of mitanni who um, asks for two gold statues from the pharaoh and he gets two statues and he writes back furiously that what he got back were two gold-plated statues and he'd definitely been promised <laughs> solid gold. Well, talking about stuffed animals takes us to the Trojan horse, which uh, <laughs> taught us never to look a gift horse in the mouth. But I want to ask you about another ancient diplomatic gift that may have been given to Alexander the Great as a taunt. Oh yes, this was the this was a gift um, when Alexander was kind of menacing Persia, and the 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 ruler, the Achaemenid ruler at the time was was Darius the Third, who was considered in in the day, you know, a much more sort of older, much more kind of senior ruler against this this young sort of Greek upstart. Uh, and Darius the Third gives Alexander a gift, uh, so the story goes, of a whip, a ball, and a chest of gold. And this is this is a gift intended as a tort, you know, the whip, whip to, to show that he needs discipline, uh, the ball because he's a little child, so all <laughs> he can do is sort of play ball with the other children around, and the chest of gold so, you know, so that his troops have the money they need to sort of get back to Greece and stop bothering him in Persia. And, and so Ale- Alexander sort of receiving this completely subverts the meaning of it. In what sense? And, and rallies his troops by saying, well, this gift, well, he says, well, this gift shows, this whip means that I'm going to thrash the Darius and his <laughs> forces. Uh, the ball is a symbol of the globe that's showing that, that our empire is going to stretch around the whole world. And look at the gold, the Darius is already paying us tribute. Uh, so he, he subverts Darius completely and goes on to, 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 to conquer, the, conquer the empire. Paul, is, the, is, this story, <laughs> is this story authenticated or perhaps apocryphal? Oh, I think it's completely made up. It, it's it's found in something called the Alexander Romance, which uh, is you know basically sort of lords uh, Alexander through all sorts of improbable tales. So, I, I sadly I don't think it's got any foundation in. in truth at all though the really a really kind of weird thing is it turns up again uh, the same story but with different a different cast list in shakespeare in henry v so the, the the dauphin of france um sends an ambassador to henry v with a with a whole load of tennis balls you know the idea <laughs> being that henry v is this child and just just play can only play tennis and henry v sort of completely subverts the meaning and says no these tennis balls are cannonballs and that's to show how we're going to destroy you french well from the stuffed uh, trojan horse let's go to unstuffed animals and there's a ray of them given as gifts throughout your book elephants rhinoceroses giraffes pandas and at one point, beavers make an appearance. Why were beavers considered a, an appropriate diplomatic present? Yeah, so as, as you say, exotic animals are, have really been favoured diplomatic gifts for for many, many centuries. So you know, the Abbasid ruler gave Charlemagne an, an elephant in uh, the, the end of the 8th century. Um, and very right up to the present day, where China very frequently uses a kind of panda diplomacy as a as a gift gift giving strategy, um, but beavers are quite an unusual gift, diplomatic gift. They they were quite prominent at, at various times in history, but not as 
unlike the other exotic animals, they were not really there to be enjoyed as living creatures. And I think uh, sooner after receipt, I, I fear the poor beavers would have been no longer. The, the attraction was, was partly about the fur. It's, it's partly about meat. And, and, and because particularly in medieval times, there was a really curious feature of beaver meat because it was considered, because the tail particularly was, looked quite scaly, um, it was considered as fish, so it could be eaten during Lent. So, <laughs> so beaver tail was, it was a great sort of uh, delicacy in, in, at, at the time. Um, but, but the real attraction was a thing called castoreum, which was this oily secretion um, produced from a gland near the beaver's anus, which was uh, used in all sorts of ways, but particularly in medieval times for medicine. So well, that's how, how dare, how dare <laughs> the Canadians give a beavers to our own beloved Queen Elizabeth? Well, this, this dates back to the foundation of the Hudson Bay Company, where the, 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 the company got this, this kind of wonderful um, deal whereby in exchange for monopoly trading rights over territory uh, amounting to some 40% of uh, the present-day territory of Canada, um, all they had to do was provide two beavers and two elk um, whenever a monarch um, went to the territory, and that's only been paid four times. And I think the most recent example was, as you say, in, in 1970 when, when Queen Elizabeth uh, visited Canada. And she, uh, I think for the first time, they'd been given beaver pelts before then, but, but at that time, that was the first time that the Queen was presented with two live beavers. I understand they're still swimming in the moat around, uh, <laughs> around one of the palaces. Now, I have to ask you about the Amber Room and its extraordinary story. It was, of course, a gift from the King of Prussia to Peter the Great way back in 1716, and what a story it can tell. Yeah, it's it's now um, I mean regarded perhaps as the most most valuable miss, missing artwork of of all. It's this fabulous amber panelled. Uh, room, which was originally destined by Frederick I of, of Prussia, wanted it to uh, beautify the palace in his new capital of Berlin. But his son was a very frugal character, um, decided he didn't want any of this sort of frippery, uh, and it would be the perfect gift that he needed, a diplomatic gift for, for a visit of Peter the Great of Russia, who was an important ally to Prussia. So he needed to give him something good. So he sort of got Two, killed two birds with one stone, getting rid of this panelled room that he didn't really want and giving giving Peter the Great something something really good. Um, but it then, it, it then adorned uh, the Catherine Palace um, south of St. Petersburg um, until the Nazis came in, in 1941. Uh, and the Nazis took it off the wall and... and um, took it to Königsberg. And then at the end of the Second World War, there was a big kind of firefight around Königsberg Castle. And nobody knows what, what the fate of the Amber Room was. And I think the, the, the Soviet authorities in particular didn't, didn't kind of want to entertain the thought that they might have inadvertently destroyed this fabulous treasure in the firefight. So, well, so, well, the, so the, the, one, the Amber Room that I remember seeing is a facsimile thereof. It, it, it is, yeah. There's, there's been this great sort of hunt for the Amber Room everywhere from shipwrecks off the Baltic coast to mine workings in Silesia. But, um, you know, eventually after sort of decades, the uh, the Russian authorities got, got 
you know, decided, I think, tacitly, we're never going to find this thing. So they spent a, a lot of money and very painstakingly reconstructed the Amber Room. So you can you can go and see it now. It was inaugurated, I think, in 2003 for the 300th anniversary of, of St. Petersburg. I'm talking to Paul Brummel, diplomat extraordinaire. Now, Paul, I'm sitting at a high-tech desk, but it's completely devoid of any sort of atmospherics. Tell me about the Resolute desk. I, th- I think this is one of the most imaginative of all diplomatic gifts. Um, it has its origins in a kind of tragedy of Arctic exploration, which was the expedition of Lord Franklin. Um, uh, he wanted to find the Northwest Passage and sent, uh, went with uh, his ships, uh, disappeared in, in the Arctic, was never heard of uh, or, or wasn't, wasn't heard of again. Um, and lots of this you know outraged kind of victorian society there was a great campaign to to find lord franklin and one of the rescue vessels was called the resolute uh, and the resolute in the process of of trying to hunt down a uh, trace of franklin's expedition itself got stuck in the arctic and had to be abandoned um, there was then a U.S. whaling vessel um, came across the uh, the Resolute, just um, sailing, uh, abandoned in the in the sea, and managed to salvage it, took it back to to the U.S. and the American authorities gave the UK back the Resolute as a, as a great diplomatic gift, a hugely successful one. And then what happened was when the the Res- Resolute, you know, its time was was ended and and it had to be. Uh, decommissioned, uh, Queen Victoria arranged that a desk, a beautiful desk, would be carved and created from the Resolute's timbers, and that she presented to the to the U.S. President. And it's still there now. It's it's the desk right at the heart of the Oval Office, some 140 years later. Uh, so, as a kind of successful diplomatic gift that's still at the heart of, of power in the recipient country, I think it's quite hard to beat. Paul, as you and I talk, a uh, a ship loaded with well over a thousand Porsches is burning and sinking. And that reminds us that Hitler used posh cars to try and encourage a pro-British realist to adopt a more pro-German position. And he certainly wasn't wasting time on Volkswagens. No, I mean one of the most amazing stories is uh, concerns a man called Bupinda Singh, who was the Maharaja of Patiala, a princely state in in then kind of British-controlled uh, India. And he was a he was a real character. He was the first uh, first captain of an Indian cricket team to tour England. But he was also you know lo- had very lavish tastes, and he commissioned for himself something called the Patiala necklace with three thousand diamonds. Um, and in the mid-1930s, he went on a tour of Europe and he put in for a courtesy call on Hitler. And they had a meeting and seemed to have hit it off because he, they then had a, a range of meetings over successive days, uh, as a result of which uh, Hitler gave the Maharaja this absolutely immense uh, car, this um, Maybach Zeppelin. It was five and a half metres long. It had searchlights over the grill so that uh, which showed whether the Maharaja or Maharani were, were in the car at the time. So it was a truly sort of fabulous thing. And, and what Hitler seems to have wanted, obviously, was, was um, for Patiala to 
declare itself neutral in, in, in the coming hostilities, of which he was completely unsuccessful. It was a very, you know, Patiara immediately, as the whole of India, sided, sided, with, the, sided with the British. Um, but... Uh, and, and when the car when the car arrived, I think it was just a huge embarrassment. So you know, it was sort of consigned to the consigned to a garage in Patiala. It was never driven at all, and and, and I think it was the Maharaja kind of quietly gifted it on to to somebody else. You've got so many wonderful stories, and we haven't got time to tell them. Even we can only hint at the story about Nixon's gifts of moon rock. <laughs> Uh, and, of course, um, our own former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, liked to gift R.M. Williams boots. Absolutely. I, th- I think R.M. Williams boots, they've, they've been favoured almost kind of a- across the political spectrum in Australia. So, so Kevin Rudd and both Tony Abbott have both, both used them quite frequently in their diplomatic gifting. And I think that... Um, that's because, I mean, Australia is actually one of the few countries to be very public about its diplomatic gifting stra- strategy. You can, you can go online to the website of the Australian uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and see the diplomatic gifting guidelines. And they really, they're very interesting because they really kind of dissuade Australian officials from giving gifts. They emphasise right at the outset that Australia is not a gift-giving country. Uh, they impose quite strict limits on the uh, value of gifts that that can be given. So gift giving has always been distinguished between a gift and a bribe, but uh, a more recent dilemma must be to distinguish between a gift and aid. Yeah, aid is very very interesting. One one, one thing that is quite palpable is the way that a lot of of donors, particularly um, OECD donors, are very reluctant to use the language of gifts when talking about aid. Indeed, that the term aid is increasingly out of favour, replaced by kind of development cooperation. People talk less about donor and recipient than about development partners. And I think uh, my argument in, in the book is that that actually is understandable if you if you look back at the work of Marcel Mauss on gift giving, where. He think he identifies what's really important with a gift is to reciprocate it. If you if you don't give something back, then it's a pure gift, and the risk of pure gifts is that it it, it can develop a a kind of culture of humiliation and and dependence. Paul, you've given a gift to the program. Unfortunately, you are out of time. Paul Brummel, diplomat, writer. His new book is Diplomatic Gifts. A History in 50 Presents, published by Hearst. That's your lot on our next The Wonderful David George Haskell walks us through the sounds of evolution. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.